focused on this idea of Jesus as the Word, Jesus as the communication, Jesus as the message, the conversation of God with us. And so first, first Sunday of Advent, three weeks ago, we talked about creation, how God speaks and we come into being. And that's how this conversation, this relationship has started. And then we talked about our, our trying to silence God during the fall when Adam and Eve refused to listen to him. And the relationship was interrupted. It was broken. But God still spoke with us. God still spoke to us through witnesses like John the Baptist about the coming Jesus. And so today, we're going to focus on God's shout. When God shouts and speaks loudly to us in the incarnation of Jesus. When God came into this world, became human to save us and to help us. So if you'd like to open your Bibles to John 1, and we're going to read from verse 9 to 14. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son, from the Father, full of grace and truth. For us to understand how God resumes a relationship with us, how he resumes a conversation with us in the incarnation of Christ. We need to look at three things from this text. We need to look at a great mystery of the incarnation. Secondly, we need to look at a great tragedy of our rejecting him. And lastly, we need to look at the great victory of God still accepting us by grace. So a great mystery, a great tragedy, and finally, a great victory. Now, you've heard the word incarnation. We throw it around in church. What does it mean? What do I mean when I say incarnation of Christ or God became incarnate? I simply mean that God became human, that the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, the one whom we call Jesus, or whom John calls the Word, through whom and for whom everything was created, became a human person, born of Mary in Bethlehem. Our text describes it as the Word becoming flesh. When the Word became flesh, He did not stop being God. This is very important, that God did not lose any of His divinity, any of His divine nature, but remained fully God. And yet His full divinity was united to full, real humanity. God actually became human. He did not pretend to be human for a time, but He became human. Completely human. Human in every way except for sin. So the proper way, the theological way to describe Jesus is as one person with two distinct natures. One divine and one human. Two natures in one person. We see that probably most clearly when Jesus prays, when he prays at Gethsemane, when he prays in the garden. And he prays, not my will, but your will to be done. There are two wills in Jesus. How can that be that he's wrestling? Well, his human nature is interacting with his divine nature. And he is trusting God that God will do what he himself agreed to in the beginning of time. 
God actually became human without stopping to be God. This is a great mystery. As we, even as I talk about it, how can we understand it? How can we comprehend what happened in Bethlehem? That God became human. We can describe it maybe a little bit, but I think inevitably when we try to describe it, we write poetry and write songs. Listen to Augustine. Augustine describes the incarnation and like I said, he falls back to poetry. Augustine says, The word of the Father, by whom all time was created, was made flesh and was born in time for us. He without whose divine permission no day completes its course, wished to have one day for his human birth. In the bosom of his Father he existed before all the cycles of ages. Born of an earthly mother, he entered upon the course of the years on this day. The maker of man became man, that he, ruler of the stars, might be nourished at the breast. That he, the bread, might be hungry. That he, the fountain, might thirst. That he, the light, might sleep. That he, the way, might be wearied by the journey. That he, the truth, might be accused by false witnesses. That he, the judge of the living and the dead, might be brought to trial by a mortal judge, that he, justice, might be condemned by the unjust, that he, discipline, might be scourged by, with whips, that he, the foundation, might be suspended upon a cross, that courage might be weakened, that security might be wounded, that life might die. Amazing. Amazing. We're dealing with things that, that are incomprehensible. God becoming human. There's a great mystery here. As great as God is, that he should become human as small as we are. Now many of us, probably most of us here, have celebrated many Christmases. And this idea of God coming into our world through Jesus is familiar to us. It's, it's normal. We feel that that's part of our life. It's, it's something we can grasp. In fact, look at how the incarnation is portrayed, typically portrayed in art today. It's portrayed as natural, normal, nice. The manger is clean. The animals are quiet. The weather is nice. The people are happy and pretty. All is calm. All is bright. It's the picture of the incarnation that we can handle, that we can come to grips with. We're okay with that. It's normal. It's nice. It's palatable. What is the biblical picture of Jesus coming into the world? Well, first of all, Jesus becomes human. He comes into the world through the violence of the human birth. Those of us who have children, those of us who gave birth to children, know the violence that happens to your body when you bring a child into the world. I have not brought any children into the world myself, but I was bitten by one who did. Because there was such pain, there was such struggle in this. Jesus comes into the world already bruised and bloodied. It's not a pretty baby all cleaned up, quietly sleeping. There's a violence that happens when Jesus comes into the world. His mother could barely breathe, so great is her pain. You know why they teach you to breathe, right? When you give birth. It's important because it's hard. Because there's a lot of pain. Your body is strained almost beyond your capacity. His earthly father, Joseph, is wondering 
whether both his wife and his baby or neither are going to survive this. Remember, in the ancient world, many people died giving birth. Many children died very early on. And so Joseph is worried. He's concerned. He doesn't know how this is going to turn out. Jesus comes into the world during the chaos of a government census in an overcrowded town. There's a reason why Scripture says there was no place for him at the inn. Now maybe, maybe where he ended up wasn't as bad as we imagine it to be. And it is true that people often shared living space with animals. But still, it wasn't the best choice. He wasn't allowed to go where he would prefer to go. And so he comes into an overcrowded, chaotic situation. First visitors are a group of terrified shepherds. Shepherds would not be allowed to visit a hospital today. They come in and they're scared. Of course we think of, you know, we sing these songs and we think of shepherds marveling at this, this mystery of this, this wonder of God. And that's true. There was a genuine awe that they experienced. But the other side of awe is fear. They're terrified. There's an army of angels that is talking to them. And so they go and they search for this king. They're scared. The incarnation is a messy, dirty, smelly, scary, and yet absolutely glorious thing. It's a mystery. We can't comprehend it. We can describe it, but we can't really understand it. The great mystery of God becoming human. When I think of humanity, I think of this one story I heard on the news. This was five years ago. A four-year-old boy was picked up by the police on the street at 1.45 a.m., so early, early morning, late at night, he was wearing a girl's dress and drinking a beer. He just uh, he had got out of his house, snuck out, got himself a beer from the fridge, snuck into his neighbor's house and stole four wrapped presents from under the tree. Apparently one of those presents contained a dress, so he put it on. Friends, that's humanity. That's humanity. That's how confused we are. That's how silly we are. That's how weird we are. That's us. That's the human race. And Jesus comes into our humanity and embraces all of it except for sin. It's amazing. Amazing that God unites himself to that degree. As Augustine says, he becomes that which he himself created. That's humanity. It's a great mystery of God becoming human. On a more somber note, I'm sure all of us have followed this story out of Newtown, Connecticut this past week. Uh, about 20, I don't know the final count, but over 20 children dead, uh, I think 10 or 12 adults shot dead at a school that was hidden away off the beaten path in, in a small town in New England. We mourn, we are angry at the violence and the sin that, that happens in our world, and yet that is exactly the world that Jesus goes into. What happened? after Jesus was born. Do you remember that the king sends an order out to kill all the toddlers and infants in hopes that he would get Jesus? And so Jesus is forced to flee. His family takes him away to Egypt to wait until this king dies or something happens so they can return to their homeland. So this glorious incarnation, right, right away, right away, uh, encounters difficulties and problems and barriers where the government itself kills babies and they try to kill Jesus. Amazing. That's the humanity that God c 
connects himself with. That's who he comes to. And so the question that some of you should have in your minds right now, and I have for sure, is why? Why would Jesus become human? Why would God become human? Now the answer is very clear in Scripture. It's very simple, and yet it, it should make us tremble and cry. That's how profound it is. The answer is that he loves us. That God loves us. The reason Jesus came, the reason God became human, is because God loves us and he wants to be with us. It's amazing. As amazing and deep as the mystery of the incarnation is, of God becoming human, the mystery of his love for us is greater. That God would love us the way we are, who we are, that God would love us and want to be with us. Want to be with a four-year-old drinking beer, walking down the highway. It's amazing that God would do that. First John 4, verse 9 says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. Why did Jesus come? Because God wanted to show His love for us. He sends His Son so He can be with us, so He can give us life, so we too can live as God lives. Bishop Ware, an Orthodox theologian, says, Man could not come to God, so God has come to man by making himself human. In this outgoing or ecstatic love, God unites himself to his creation in the closest possible union by himself becoming that which he has created. Isn't that the greatest mystery of all, that God would love us and come to be with us? Henry Nouwen says, To us who cry out from the depth of our brokenness for a hand that will touch us, an arm that can embrace us, lips that will kiss us, a word that speaks to us here and now, and a heart that is not afraid of our fears and tremblings. To us who feel our pain as, as no other human being feels it, has felt it, or will ever feel it, and who are always waiting for someone who dares to come close. To us, a man has come who could truly say, I am with you. Jesus Christ, who is God with us, has come to us in the freedom of love, not needing to experience our human condition. God did not need to experience our human condition. God did not need to become human and to be with us but he chose to do that because he loves us. Amazing. The mystery of God's love that moved him to become human, to live among us, to, to display his glory to us, to help us and to care for us. So how did humanity, in need of love, desperately wanting that hand to touch us and that arm to embrace us and that heart to be close to us, how did we respond to Jesus coming into the world to love us. We'll look at verse 10 and 11 of our text. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Verse 11, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Jesus was rejected. When Jesus came to express his love for us and became human and united himself in the closest possible of all unions by becoming like us, he was rejected. He was questioned 
He was doubted. He was challenged. He was ignored. He was not taken seriously. He was mocked and ridiculed. He was bullied. He was put down. He was humiliated. And he was lynched on the cross. Jesus was not only rejected as God, he was rejected as a human being. Not only did, did his divine rights were not recognized, his human rights were violated by torture, unfair accusations, and unjust prosecution. Oppressed and persecuted, the lover of humanity was condemned and rejected, and he died alone. Amazing. That somebody like him would do something like that, and we would respond in this way. The world which he created, the world that exists for his glory, rejected him, and that's a great tragedy. But it gets even worse. He came not just to the world, but he came to his people. Verse 11, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. We can translate this verse as, he came home, and his own did not receive him. He came home. Now the Jewish people had the scriptures. They had what we have now the stories of God working miracles in their history. They had the memory of God doing crazy, great things for them, like taking them out of slavery in Egypt, parting the Red Sea, saving them from enemies that far outnumbered them. They had the scriptures. They had the prophets. They had the witnesses. They had John the Baptist who preached about Jesus. This is just, just a couple of years before Jesus dies. John the Baptist preaches and he says, prepare because Jesus is coming. And when Jesus comes, he points at Jesus and he says, behold, this is who I'm talking about. And the crowds see Jesus on the basis of the witness of John the Baptist. That's the people who reject him. So if anybody would accept Jesus, it would have been his people. And his people reject him. You see, we, you know, sometimes people tell me, well, if, if Jesus would just prove to me that he's real, if Jesus would just come here and talk with me and touch me and heal me, then I would believe, then I would trust him, then I would know that he really is who he says he is. And my answer to that is always, look at Scripture. How many people heard Jesus, touched Jesus, were healed by Jesus, saw Jesus perform miracles, heard him preach, and yet rejected him? How many? Most. Most people reject him. There's a handful of people that stick with Jesus. Twelve, twelve people, maybe thirty. That's all he's got. And all of them reject him at the cross. All of them leave him. He's alone at the cross. Is it because it's the Jewish people, they have something special about them that makes them reject Jesus? No. No. What it shows is that even the people given the greatest privileges, the greatest information, still reject Jesus. Because it's not that Jesus would just need to prove himself more or give us more evidence. The problem is not with the reality of Jesus, but the problem is with the depth of our sin. We love sin. And even if light shines on our sin, we still choose darkness and not light. So when Jesus comes and this light shines on everyone, most people reject him. Most people retreat into the darkness. Uh, Cyril of Alexandria, the church father, he uses this analogy. He says that the sign shines on everyone. The sun shines on everyone. But those who are blind cannot see it. It's not the sun's fault. The sun is as bright as it can be. 
But if you're blind, it doesn't matter. You can't see it. You can't understand it. It doesn't matter how bright the sun is if we are incapable of seeing. The analogy that came to mind uh, when I was studying this passage is, is Jesus walking into a room full of broken, scratched up, dirty mirrors. He longs to be reflected in the mirrors. He longs to see his glory and his beauty. And yet, they're all broken. They're incapable of reflecting anything beautiful. Isn't that our world? Jesus comes and nobody recognizes him. Isn't it our life that Jesus comes to us and we reject him? And we don't recognize him, we don't want him? Jesus is no less beautiful, he's no less loving, even though we reject him. It just shows us how deep our sin runs. We are a room full of broken, dirty mirrors. And so the love of the incarnate God is not reciprocated. He is utterly rejected. He enters the world, but we push him back out. This is part of the Christmas story. It's not the, the end of it. It's not all of it, but it's part of it. Leanne Morris says, The end of the story is not the tragedy of rejection, but the grace of acceptance. So we can't stop here. We can't just be depressed about how we rejected him. We need to look beyond that. We need to see what else did Jesus do. When he came in the mystery of the incarnation, he loved us, he expressed his glory to us, and we rejected him. What happens next? Well, what happens next is the great victory of grace. That this loving God who was rejected in the Garden of Eden by Adam and Eve and on the hill of Calvary by us overcomes our rejection loves us anyway, and accepts us by grace. Look at verse 12 and 13. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. How can anyone receive him? How can a broken mirror reflect the beauty of the Son of God? How can anyone believe in him? It's grace. It's grace. God, by grace, changes you in such a way that you can love him, that you can believe in him, that you can accept him. Not within yourself. Something weird, something supernatural needs to happen. What is it? It's two things. Adoption and regeneration. He adopts you into his family. He makes you his children. He gives you the right or the authority or the power to be called his children. Did you know that you can call him father and it's okay? It's okay to call him father. There's, there, he, doesn't, he, he loves it when you call him father because he's, he's accepted you into his family. And Go ahead, call him. Call him father. Call him daddy. Call him papa. Whatever you want to do, call him because he's already accepted you into his family. On the highest authority of God, we are adopted into his family. We can now call him Father. Amazing. It's a legal change. It's a change in status. You used to belong to a different family before. Now God comes in and he says, now you are mine. And he changes your status. Documents are signed. The judge passes a verdict. And now you belong to him. One of the, the most fulfilling experiences of my life is adopting our youngest daughter. And when we did that, we realized just how much grace God has for us. Our daughter, Evie, did not seek us out. She didn't know we were coming. She didn't know if she liked us or not. 
And yet we came and we said, you're mine. We love you. We will take care of you. We choose for you to be in our family. And then we went to the judge and we said, your honor, this is the child we want. And we promise to love her and to care for her well. And everything that we have now is legally hers. She is just like any other child we have. And the judge says, okay. And from that point on, there's no turning back. It's been done. She's our child. Could she do anything to deserve that? Could she do anything to earn that? Could she do anything to get us to be her parents? Nothing. Nothing. All by grace. All because we saw her picture months earlier. And God moved our hearts to love her. It's all by grace. And that is exactly how it is with you and God. When God comes into your life, it's all by grace. He saw your picture in the garden and he looks at you and he says, I'm going to love you. I'm going to choose for you to be in my family. The judge said, okay, and I'm going to adopt you legally. Now you're mine. Call me father. That's adoption. And because he changes our legal status, now we can be different. Not only that we are different legally, but listen to what else he does. He changes us from within. He gives us a new nature. God says, not only act the way you are legal, but now act the way you want to act towards me because now you have different desires, different aspirations, different ambitions. I've changed you from within. You're now born not like human beings are born because dad and mom got together and they made a baby. He says, you're born differently. There's a supernatural spiritual birth that happens, which is why Scripture calls it being born again or being born from above. It's a spiritual birth from the Word of God. You're born, your nature has changed, and now you can love God. You can believe in Him. You can accept Him. Why? Because you're different. You're His adopted child, and your nature has been changed. You know, with adopted children... One of the difficulties is that even though legally everything has been settled, emotionally and spiritually and physically it hasn't, it's a brand new kid that just gets dropped in a family and now they have, to, they have to love him. They don't know him yet. It's amazing. It takes time for it to change. And so it is with us and God. Legally, we're secure. Practically speaking, we're learning to love him. We're learning to accept him and to believe in him. But he has changed us. He made us his child through the blood of Jesus. Not just legal, but a supernatural change in us. So this is the victory of grace. Now let me leave you with this question. Do you believe? All who, who believed in him, all who received him, now have the right and the power and the authority to be called his children. Do you believe in Jesus? Have you accepted Jesus? Have you resumed this conversation with God through the Jesus who came to live with you, to show his glory and to die and to rise for you? Now, to help us grapple with that, we come to the table. And at the table, what do we see? We see a physical representation of incarnation. You see, there are physical things here because God became physical. We can take the bread as his broken body. We can hold the cup as the symbol of his covenant, the blood that was spilled for us. 
we can take him in. And just as God was born of man, now men and women can be born of God. If you're a Christian, man, what a special time to come to the table. You come to the table and you celebrate that God loved you, that Jesus came, that Jesus was broken for you, that his blood was spilled to make you a natural child of God. Amazing. So let's pray and let's do that. If you're not a Christian, don't come to the table because everybody else is. It's for the adopted children of God. And if you have been adopted, if you exercise your faith, then you come by faith to the table. If you haven't, stay back, meditate on what he's telling you, listen to him, and believe. Accept him. Take him in to your life. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you. All this talk of mystery and wonder and marvels make us worship you. It moves us to praise you. It moves us to write poetry and songs and sing to you. And that's what we want to do. We are overwhelmed by your love. We are overwhelmed with what you've done for us. Forgive us that we forget. Forgive us that we are not always focused on what you're doing and what you've done for us. That we so often accept other lords, other saviors, and we are distracted and we love other things more than you many times. Thank you that you are gracious. Thank you that you overcome that, that you overcome our rejection. You don't leave us in the orphanage, but you take us to yourself to be part of your family. Well, we are so thankful. We are so thankful that we don't make those decisions, that we are not the final deciders of that, that you come and you take us in, that you overcome our reluctance. Thank you for the gift of faith. Thank you that we can believe, that we can accept you. And I pray for those of us who are not believers, make them believers. May your spirit come and do a work in their hearts where their heart will be open to you, when they could love you and follow you and believe in you. I pray for those of us who struggle with our faith today. Increase our faith, nourish it. Even as we come to the table, feed us. Let us feed on Jesus, on the incarnate word, so we could become more faithful more courageous, better followers of you. Father, we thank you for the Holy Spirit. We thank you that he comes and he ministers to us, that he makes the gospel real. We don't need any more proof. We don't need any more evidence. We just need your spirit to come and convince us in our hearts that you love us, that Jesus died, that he rose, that he did it for us, that grace is available to us right now. Just like at this table, a meal is offered to us, a feast is set up for us to participate. We're invited to come. So grace is given to us freely. Salvation is offered to us freely. A relationship with you is offered to us freely. Let us respond well to that. Father, we pray in the name of Jesus, and we pray that Jesus would become real to us now. We remember that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup you proclaim the Lord's death 
until he comes. Let's do it together.